We live in a twilight world. And there are no friends at dusk. Up next, Tenet. We all believe we've run into the burning building. But until we feel that heat, we can never know. You do. You chose to die instead of giving up your colleagues. That test you passed? Not everybody does. Welcome to the afterlife. To do what I do, I need some idea of the threat we face. As I understand it, we're trying to prevent World War III. Nuclear holocaust? No. Something worse. All I have for you is a word. Tell it. It'll open the right doors. Some of the wrong ones, too. Start looking at the world in a new way. Don't try to understand it. Feel it. What happened here? Hasn't happened yet. podcast about film always counting down to next year's oscars i'm sophia simonello and i'm nick Rorkraut. i'm so excited to talk about this movie with you and it's been really hard because i've been holding off on texting you about all my theories and i think that you know generally how i feel i think it's gonna take a while for us to like actually process and see how this ends up as one of nolan's films but i haven't really talked through it yet So this will be a very interesting conversation. Yeah, neither have I. We will be going deep into spoilers. If you haven't seen Tenet yet, I highly recommend watching it before listening to this podcast because while there aren't a ton of things to spoil, maybe, I think it's better to go in with a completely open mind and not really know anything about it. Well, even with the gist of Tenet of like... What are they trying to defend or save? And I liked not knowing even that part. Mm -hmm. Because they were like, it's bigger than big. And it's like, oh boy. (laughs) It's really not a spoiler. But still in the grand scheme of things, it's like, that's how Tenet works. Mm -hmm. So before we get into Tenet, we had an award show last night. Let's talk about the Emmys. How did you feel? First of the season. I was pretty happy. There were some big upsets and some really exciting wins. Obviously, we started the night with an hour-long Schitt's Creek special. Seriously. With them sweeping. (laughs) I mean, it's the first show to have ever done that for all the acting noms, let alone all of the primetime Emmy comedy nominations, which is crazy. It really is so crazy. And I think coming right off of last year, when that was their first year, to receive any nominations at the Emmys, to then 
completely mm-hmm. sweep this year. And I will say I'm not a huge fan of sweeps generally. I would like to have seen some love go to Insecure, but if it was going to be any show, Shit's Creek is a great one to have sweep. I was so excited Catherine O'Hara won mainly. And finally, finally, oh, right? Moira deserved her Emmy. But if Succession had sweeped, I feel like you would have been okay with that. Okay, I've been called out, and that's fine. <laughs> Hot take. Yes, thank you. Okay. You're totally I mean, right. I think Sarah Snook deserves an Emmy, and hopefully she has the power in the next season of Succession, but so far, no luck. Right, and it's not a final season, so I get it, but I was very, very happy with Jeremy Strong winning my, you mm-hmm. know, Kendall Hive. All the love to everyone in that with me. And very excited about Zendaya for Euphoria. Crazy. I did not expect that at all. And when I watched Euphoria way back when, her performance, I was like, she deserves an Emmy for this. And lo and behold, it happened. she is Emmy winner Zendaya. Yeah. I was rooting for Paul Mescal from Normal People to win. That was like my mm-hmm. most upsetting one, I would say. Loss that I saw where I was just like, ugh. Really? Like Mark Ruffalo? I mean, fine. I think his push and the attention he got was too late for voting. Mm. I think if the voting window had been longer or just later on, he might have gotten more votes for sure. Mm -hmm. I can see that. Very excited Regina King won for Watchmen. And we'll give a little update, I think we should, on the fantasy draft because you're doing very well. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Am I really? I think so. I really I mean, like, your wild card, Regina King, for One Night in Miami, I think that's totally possible for a director. I think that got great reviews Mm -hmm. coming out of festivals, but mainly Nomadland. Nomadland. Killing it. Searchlight is getting a lot. It won the Golden Lion at the Venice Film Festival. Yep. And it also won People's Choice at TIFF. Amazing. Which is huge. So I get to see it virtually this Saturday. Me I'm too. Very excited. Oh, I can't wait. Thank you, New York Film Festival. So the main event, how did you feel your first time, your second time, maybe even your third time <laughs> seeing Tenet? I don't know how many times you've seen it already. I'm at three. So my first time was definitely the most overwhelming to just see a movie mm-hmm. this big again. It is very confusing. It has a lot of great things in it that I really latched onto and enjoyed. I don't know if that's because I'm deprived of big movies. How did you feel? I think there's a plateau for understanding Tenet. At some point, you're just not going to get it anymore. And I think I'm there. (laughs) I think I am too. It was a very quick plateau. I've seen it twice. And it's just... We'll get into like specific scenes later on, but really that final scene where they have 10 minutes, I just don't think I'm ever going to understand it fully. No. There's just so much going on and you're really trying to process forward and backward at the same time. And it's just, there's a mental block there. (laughs) I love that mindset and that Nolan takes us to this place where we're trying to understand so many things at once. He's making us really think. Did you realize that the word tenant is a palindrome with 10 forwards and backwards like the clock in the final battle? Oh my god, no. Isn't that cool? I knew it was a palindrome, but I never thought about breaking it down. Oh, there's wow, wild. plenty more where that came from that I'll get into later. <laughs> <laughs> How did this stack up to other Nolans for you? Not doing a full ranking, but just generally. To me, it's his most ambitious and compelling 
but it's not necessarily the most satisfying or enjoyable. I say that, but that doesn't mean I don't like it. Mm -hmm. I do really like it, but I think like Inception and The Prestige, The Dark Knight, these are all just like more satisfying movies and endings especially. Mm -hmm. I can see that. I think that generally the problems that I have with Nolan films, I still had with this one. I think first and foremost, I find him to be a director without a sense of humor. Everything is so serious and like very exposition heavy. I will say though, I liked that it didn't have this big like emotional climax to it that the others have. And it felt less like, oh, this is the point and this is what you're supposed to understand than the others. But to me, I think it was supposed to and I just didn't feel that. I think maybe that was it. maybe because the framing of his movies are all the same. You have this initial huge sequence in the opera and then there are flashbacks early on between Kat and Sater on the boat who are played by, I'm sure I'm going to switch between characters and actors' <laughs> names a lot, but <laughs> Elizabeth Dubecki and Kenneth Branagh. They're on the boat and they flash back, but you really don't see much. It's a quick edit. And he does that a lot, especially in Inception with Leonardo DiCaprio and Marion Cotillard, where you don't really understand until the very end and it's this big climax. So when we finally get to that boat scene at the end, I think you were supposed to feel a lot, especially when she jumps off the boat and we realize it's her. But I didn't feel much there. Yeah. Do you agree? or No, I agree. I only really felt it when I was reading about it after. <laughs> but I think mm-hmm. he really needs to consider hiring a screenwriter. I'm sorry. <laughs> I feel like a lot, of, a lot of the dialogue was sloppy to me. And just, it's all exposition. And I didn't care about the characters. And I had fun with it. Mm-hmm. And I enjoyed watching it. All these different locations and... The action sequences I thought were fun, but I didn't understand a lot of the characters and their motivations, and I didn't understand what was going on half the time, and I think that's partly due to the dialogue. So I had a friend who really didn't like it, and it was he said because the dialogue was so bad. And with a movie like this, it's something I can more easily overlook. I mean, I didn't put it down for any of the awards draft things because it's not that movie to me and I've explained this before I'm going to be entertained Mm -hmm. so I am willing to lift some of my more pretentious (laughs) (laughs) leanings so I can enjoy it and I agree it is a lot of exposition there's not much character development or at least their backstory and I mean the movie's left on a cliffhanger that half of the protagonist's story is left untold so Tenet 2 I don't know (laughs) I saw this morning that John David Washington said, I'm not going to say no to Tenet 2, that kind of thing. So let's talk about the cast. (laughs) So we've we've mentioned Elizabeth Debicki, John David Washington, Kenneth Branagh. This movie also stars Robert Pattinson, who... You're king. I think steals the show. I think he's just value added to every project that he's in, and this one is no exception. Well, he is really maybe tied with the most important character with the protagonist. While the protagonist is called the protagonist, Priya, a character who we will talk about later, says, like, you're not the only protagonist. And to me, Robert Pattinson's Neil is the protagonist. Is that because I'm blinded by my love for him? Maybe. (laughs) But I also think that he has the most compelling story. We also have Michael Caine, 
who makes his appearance sure for does. like maybe five minutes. It's a it's a nice little scene. But again, he's explaining to us what we need to know mm-hmm. about <laughs> these characters and how we're getting from point B to C to D mm-hmm. and so on. Thinking about other Nolan films too. So I think my favorite Nolan is Dunkirk, which I know might be controversial to some people. But part of the reason why I have this whole idea, does Nolan need to hire a screenwriter, is because Dunkirk has little to no dialogue in it. And Nolan proves he's a really good storyteller without a lot of dialogue. You know, he is able to direct these action sequences and tell stories about these characters without words. Dunkirk is another ending I have a problem with because it feels too quick when it happens. That being said, I do really love Dunkirk. And he plays with so many different frameworks for movies. And that's, I think, why he's so exceptional and beloved, really, because we don't know what we're going to get next. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I think Inception's up there, too. Did you have any favorite parts or favorite scenes, things that jumped out at you when you were watching? I listened to part of the soundtrack before I saw Mm -hmm. it. And usually I don't do that, but I couldn't resist. And the one scene which on the soundtrack is called Trucks in Place, Mm -hmm. is incredible. I love that whole scene and how they navigated between all the trucks. Then the fallout of that is kind of where I lose it too, because that's a lot of forward and backward. But that to me is up there. Starting the movie with the opera scene and watching the whole audience like faint was really cool. Yeah, those are two big ones that I really enjoyed. What about you? I also love the opening scene. To me, that was just textbook Nolan and just a really fun way to mm-hmm. start. I also love the score. Ludwig Granson, who did the score, he's only a Tony away from an EGOT now. You know, usually we're used to the Hans Zimmer scores in Nolan films, but I thought he did a really good job emulating that and also changing it to fit this film perfectly. I love the score. Well, we might have mentioned this before, but the only reason Zimmer isn't on it is because he's got asked to do Dune and he couldn't say no to Denis. (laughs) I can't wait to hear that one. I also love the Freeport scene where they crash the plane. The final battle too is impressive, especially when they blow that tower up forward and backward like simultaneously, Mm -hmm. which is quite (laughs) crazy. That was really cool. But I have to say, so the scene when it starts with Aaron Taylor Johnson actually explaining Mm -hmm. what they're going to do. I mentally tapped out. I took Clemens Posey's advice and I said, you know, don't try to understand it. Just feel it. And I had no idea what was happening during any of that action sequence for the most part, except for the plot line with Kat and Seder on the boat. That I understood. Mm -hmm. And anytime it would go to that scene, I was like, okay, we're good. I know what's happening here. We're grounded. (laughs) I don't have to follow the forward and backward moving people and figure out why they're doing what they're doing. Well, the second time I saw it during that last scene, I finally understood that there were potentially two Neils Um, happening. Yeah, there could be six Neils. In the same timeline, which is, that's a whole whole conversation. Does the thought of two Rob Pattinson's being in the world overwhelm you? (laughs) Maybe not as much as you, I think. <laughs> oh, okay. This is going to be a struggle. All podcasts, you'll need to keep me on track. <laughs> Those, I think, were positive things. What didn't work for you? We've talked about exposition, dialogue a little bit. What else was hard? I think the one moment was kind of the Horcrux 
part of the story where satyrs hidden these nine parts through time, mm-hmm. anywhere, and and then Priya goes, oh, he has all nine now, and it was like that was a whole story that <laughs> didn't happen. That seemed a little a little quick, a little off to me. These big movies like Avengers Endgame, or maybe it was Infinity War. I don't. I honestly don't remember. And then you have like Harry Potter. <laughs> Where you have to collect all of these different things to make like one big totem of sorts. We might need to think of something else at Hollywood. I think it's a way to expand and extend the dialogue and the story, really. Mm-hmm. And it gives them the chance to have part two, three, four, five. And that bores me. <laughs> so this was not a typical addition for Nolan and it didn't even really make the whole story more complex I think that's probably what he was going for Mm -hmm. and saying oh we've been at this for so long and maybe that's where Tenet 2 comes in is that you know that's the collection of these pieces (laughs) the plutonium but yeah not it for me yeah were there any more parts for you that you didn't like you didn't get yeah so okay first technically I thought that the sound mixing was awful a lot of people had this issue where Mm -hmm. He has a lot of people talking with masks on in his films. He did test screenings of The Dark Knight Rises. He had to re-record some dialogue. Exactly. This is Bane all over again. We need subtitles. I needed... There were were a couple of scenes where I had no idea, no idea what was being said. Maybe subtitles wouldn't have even helped me at all. Like the scenes in the turnstiles, no idea what was said. I think also I had a lot of trouble with Elizabeth Debicki's character with Kat. This comes back also to the dialogue. I think that Christopher Nolan was gotten feedback before that he can't write female characters, that he has trouble with that. And this was no exception to me. I thought that he tried here to create this Mm -hmm. redemption arc for her. But in reality, I found her abuse storyline very thin and genuinely infuriating at times. Because that was kind of the only thing we knew about her. And she really didn't have any characterization except that she needed to be saved and rescued. And then, sure, you know, at the end that changes things a little bit. But still, it was very frustrating. And I, I thought she could have been utilized better. I also found it completely unbelievable that John David Washington's character, the protagonist, would risk everything for her. I was like, when was I supposed to believe this? Our introduction to him is that he takes a cyanide pill instead of revealing his secrets. So we're supposed to believe that a guy who would take a cyanide pill is going to just behave so carelessly for this woman he met when he could try to prevent World War III? I'm lost there. And I think part of that maybe is that their relationship is never framed in a romantic sense. So all of a sudden he's like, oh, I'm saving her. And maybe it was because... He did a wrong during the movie. He lied to her, didn't get the painting from the vault, knew it wasn't there, and she kind of guilted him afterwards. But yeah, I did not believe this. I let it happen, but it was like, eh, okay. And also, taking it back to Seder, I think his inclinations to want to cause the end of the world is really thin too. He goes, (laughs) if I can't have you, then no one will. So he's going to blow up earth like yeah I don't, and then i don't think that really correlates why do you think john david washington avoids the question so i noticed the second time through that three different people ask him what his name is and he just 
flat out ignores them. And then finally in the end, when he's talking to Priya, he's like, I am the protagonist. And like the last scene, do you have a theory of maybe why he did this? I mean, okay. Cynically, I want to say it's just bad writing. (laughs) In Tenet, like they're very secretive. She starts out saying... Don't give up who you are pretty much. Yeah, Like no details of who you are. So I think that's part of it. Right. I think the other part too is that like we come to discover near the end how different his timeline is from the rest. So I think he can't share it with us or doesn't know. This is very confusing. I hadn't thought about that until this very moment and I'm perplexed. (laughs) I think though he's just, he's not really a character. Who is he even? The protagonist? Yeah. He like becomes this God figure almost because he's saving the world. Oh, Seder, he thinks he's a god. So they like don't want to give right. him a name. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, we'll take a little break. We'll get to the timeline in a minute, which is going to be a huge chunk and mental... Puzzle. We're going to hop in the yeah. turnstile and try to figure <laughs> it out. And I will let you take the reins okay. on this. So we have a fun little segment. We are going to play Nam or Bomb with Robert Pattinson movies, starting with... The movie that began my 15-year love affair with this man, Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire. I will preface all of this with saying I probably haven't seen at least half of them. Okay. So forgive me. I'll give you like 30 seconds to rant about Arpat for each (laughs) Okay. But Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire, that is a nom for me. Nom for me too. Also mentioning that we have two Triwizard Champions in Tenet. Mm-hmm. We have Cedric yeah. Diggory and Fleur Delacour. Next up is Twilight, which I have never seen. And will not see. <laughs> <laughs> Do not have plans to. I rewatched this a few days ago for the first time since high school. What a moment in history. I have to say bomb. <laughs> I'm probably betraying all the Twilight fans out there. That's what I would have hoped for. But you still need to watch it. Okay. I will make a note of that. (laughs) All right. Next, we have Remember Me. (laughs) Have you seen this? Never seen. Remember Me is in the top, at least top 10 worst movies I've ever seen in my whole life. Hmm. Oh, boy. So, bomb. (laughs) Okay. Next up, Cosmopolis. Bomb. Haven't seen. This is the one with like the crazy twist ending, right? No, that's Remember Me. What? Oh it's horrible. God. Okay. Oof. Good time. Total nom. Nom. Absolutely one of my favorites. I think it's my favorite A24. Favorite Safdie. Maybe favorite A24. Favorite of the year. Yeah. So good. Next is High Life. Nom. I'll go nom. It's bizarre. One thing I love about him is that he works with really interesting directors. He made all this money with Twilight and then said, you know what? I'm going to do indies for a while. Next we have, speaking of that, The Lighthouse. This is a nom for me. Nom for me too. As we go through these, I'm just realizing like how many bizarre choices he's made. He's a strange In... guy. Yeah. I mean, like you hear these stories about him. He lies about a lot of stuff about his personal life. The King, which again, I haven't seen. <laughs> really? You haven't seen The King? It has no, Timothy Chalamet in it. Weird. Yeah, but I heard very weird mixed things about all of the accents and the storyline. It's not good. Um, <laughs> it's a bomb. But I will say that his accent work in it is pure camp. Yeah. 
he did this <laughs> completely out there French accent that he supposedly based on the people he works with at Dior, which if you want a good Rob Pattinson movie, watch any of his Dior ads. <laughs> okay, last up, we have The Devil All the Time. Have you watched this yet? I haven't seen it yet. I'll have to watch it this week. It's a slog. I didn't love it, but I will say nom because of him in it. Like he was he was really good. His accent is also bonkers in this one. He wouldn't reveal what his accent sounded like and wouldn't use a dialect coach. So The vibe feels very much like There Will Be Blood. If There Will Be Blood had too many characters. So in terms of the timeline, where do we even start? Do we start at the opera? I think we have to start at the opera. I think that makes the most sense. I think that while it might not be completely chronological when you're digging into the different timelines of the film, I think that because this is where we start, It's just going to be helpful. So we're going to walk you through the timeline of the film as best we can, trying to remember key details. Hopefully, we're able to explain it well. (laughs) So as we mentioned at the top of the episode, we open with a big Nolan scene. So we're at an opera in Kiev, and it ends up being this CIA mission where we meet Mm -hmm. John David Washington's character, the protagonist. And... He's saved by this mystery character who kills another guy with a bullet that travels backwards. And Mm -hmm. he ends up being captured. He takes what he believes is a cyanide pill because he won't give up his secrets. And he wakes up. It turns out that it's just a test. And he is informed of Tenet. There's a lot even in just what you've said. (laughs) (laughs) So... It's important to note that this guy that saves the protagonist has like a red string on his backpack. And that's how we know later on when we see that we go, oh, this is that guy. He's important. So also during this scene, the protagonist gets this box in Kochek from this guy. And then in this box is a piece of the algorithm, which is later what we learn are these like nine horcruxes. The plutonium all kind of like the same thing. So whatever we mention, that's what that is. Mm -hmm. We won't explain what the algorithm is now. We'll get to that when it comes up for viewers. So I will stop quickly here because I almost thought the first time I saw it, because we'll also see a cyanide pill later. And I thought like, okay, these are all fake, but like also what if it's real and this is his death and this is actually the end of his timeline. Mm. And all of this is now happening beforehand. Huh. Because the guy in the boat goes, welcome to the afterlife. I know, it doesn't really make sense. But But it's a theory. I mean, that's a fun thing about Nolan movies is you can have all of these crazy theories that come up for you. Right. And that basically the movie is in reverse of his timeline because we end the movie at the beginning, essentially. Mm -hmm. So then he's informed of Tenet. He goes to meet... Clemens Posey, she's the scientist who informs him that there are a variety of objects that they've discovered. She starts with bullets that have been inverted. So they move backwards through time. Their entropy is reversed. So they travel through time the opposite way that we travel through time. And we learn that people from the future are using these objects to wage a war on the present. And that's when she gives us the quote, Don't try to understand it. Feel it. (laughs) So then he asks her like what the bullets are made of. Through Mm -hmm. this, he's able to track the bullets to 
an arms dealer in Mumbai. And he needs to set up a meeting with Sanjay Singh. So he does so through this guy, Robert Pattinson. Neil. I'm getting all flustered thinking about him. So (laughs) we meet Neil's character and he already seems a little strange. Like there's just something about him that is different than our protagonist. Literally our first image of Neil, his hair is so disheveled. It's like he just got out of bed with a suit on. Then he orders drinks for them and he orders vodka tonic for himself and a Diet Coke for the protagonist. Um, he's like, why? Well, I, I drink soda water. He's like, no, you don't. <laughs> so he clearly knows stuff about our protagonist, but we have no idea how or why. And I have to say, I did laugh at that moment because that's like, I always try to convince myself that I like LaCroix better than Diet Coke. But if anyone really knew me, they'd order me a Diet Coke. <laughs> the ultimate drink. So then from here, they break into Sanjay Singh's apartment by bungee jumping up the building. And we then find out that Priya, the wife, is actually the one who does the business, not Sanjay. So then she informs the protagonist that the guy he's looking for, his name is Seder. Protagonist knows about him already. Mm-hmm. Each time we meet her, she doesn't give us all the information she knows. Right. It's like a little bit of exposition. Then later she gives us a little more exposition. <laughs> right. She keeps going. That's for you to find out. Yeah. Then we go to London. We meet with Michael Caine. Sir Michael. Sir Michael. One of the worst front of house people I'm sure anyone would have to deal with. Oh my God. The protagonist walks in and he goes, I'm here for my meeting with Michael Crosby. And he goes, you mean Sir Michael Crosby? And then later on, he takes him to the table. They meet and he goes, I'll have what he's having. And then he goes, I'll send the waiter. And the protagonist goes... Just pass on the order, which is absolutely one of my favorite things. One of my favorite things was when Michael Caine tells him Brooks Brothers isn't going to cut it. That was good. (laughs) But basically, Sir Michael tells him that in order to get through to Andre Sater, he's going to have to go through his wife, Kat, Elizabeth Debicki. Mm -hmm. And she is being blackmailed by her husband over this fake Goya drawing she got from this man named Arepo. And Michael Caine gives our protagonist a fake Goya drawing. So then Neil goes and meets Kat, shows her this painting, and tells her that essentially he knows everything that has happened. And he finds out about the blackmail. And then they end up going to dinner later that night where we also learn that this drawing is being held in Oslo, we think, because Seder always goes there. So in Oslo where it's being held at this free port, and this is actually a real thing, non-illegal items kept tax-free in this very secure system. But in order to get her on his side, he says he's going to get it for her, destroy it, and so she won't be blackmailed anymore. We get to really one of my favorite scenes, which is just the whole entire free port mm-hmm. art heist. And they decide that... The best way to do this is to crash a plane into the Freeport to trigger the security measures. They're not going to crash it from the air. They're going to crash it from the ground. It's a cargo plane. And the man who is helping them orchestrate that, did you see the movie yesterday? Yeah, it fi- I finally it is. put those two together. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, wow. So some other of my favorite quotes come here. Our Pat goes, in finding out how they're going to get into the Freeport, he goes, 
Well, that's a little bit dramatic. Oh, wow. <laughs> and then also when he's getting the tour and learning about, oh, they have 10 seconds before the room is full of this gas. He goes, blimey. Did you catch that part? <laughs> I sure did. <laughs> so they're also in there trying to find this specific portion where on the diagram of the building, it's like this blank space. Mm-hmm. So they know something is up there. So they finally make their way into this room and they see these bullet holes through the glass. There's this turnstile thing waiting. There's a gun on the floor and they're like, what is this? And then our protagonist says it hasn't happened yet. So he goes to pick up the gun. The gun swoops into his hand. The turnstile turns and he begins fighting this man who's in like a full head to toe black suit with a mask, helmet. The man who comes out of the other side where Neil is runs by him. Neil goes running after him. Later find out that he saw who that person was. Because the protagonist goes, oh, what happened to the other guy? And he says, I dealt with him. (laughs) This is also a scene where you know that John David Washington was a running back in college. And Rob Pattinson is a Dior model, by the way that they are (laughs) fighting with these guys. (laughs) Yes. So the protagonist is in this fight scene with this suited guy. And I want to know how the choreo happened for this. Mm -hmm. Because one is in reverse But it's obviously happening in real time. So like to see this actually play out would be so bizarre on set. The guy in the suit gets away. The protagonist almost kills him. He says, who are you? But he doesn't answer. He gets swooped out of the room. And then we end up in India again, where the protagonist is now talking to Priya. So we learn that what was in there is actually called a turnstile, which you shared. But this is a way for people to invert themselves so then there are there can be two versions of the same person one moving forward through time and one moving backward through time we also learn through this that Sater Kenneth Branagh's character is the one behind the opera mission at Kiev and we also learned earlier during the Michael Caine scene that there was an explosion at Stalsk 12 which is the place where Sater is from So we know that those two events happen simultaneously. And through this conversation, we're kind of starting to piece together that Seder is behind all of this. So then luckily we get a nice little break where we get to go to the Amalfi Coast. (laughs) (laughs) So the protagonist meets up with Kat in the Amalfi Coast and says again that he needs to meet her husband. At this point, he says that the painting was destroyed. At the dinner, everything seems to be going really poorly for the protagonist until he Mm -hmm. says, do you like opera? And then all of a sudden it's like, okay, meet me at the boat. So it's Kat, Sater, and the protagonist. They're on catamarans. Kat tries to kill her husband just like by throwing him into the water, basically. So the protagonist saves Sater, pulls him out of the water. We cut to their yacht and them to having a conversation, which is... The protagonist playing dumb and that he doesn't know any of this, but we learn about Sater's upbringing, having come from Stalls 12, finding this capsule inside. His own name was written on a piece of paper accompanied by these inverted gold bars, I believe. Mm -hmm. I think from there too, he knows how to track down the pieces of the algorithm. So he's 
communicating with the future. They're sending him instructions of how to find these nine pieces of the algorithm. So then Sater says, you should stay the night, I insist. And then they get another capsule with more items. The protagonist sees this and they catch him spying. He plays dumb again about knowing about Tenet and what these items are. So then they end up in Talon and they're going to the Freeport there. They say they're involving the wife to get her to come and do the business for them. Mm -hmm. This is getting so convoluted. Well, so this is when it started to lose me. So we're in Talon. Neil and the protagonist set up this highway mission to get another piece of the algorithm. And they discover through this that it's not actually plutonium, but Neil hints that, you know, it's got to be something worse. And this is also when Seder and his guys show up. We see them and they have masks on and this car is moving backwards. So they're Mm -hmm. inverted. And Elizabeth Debicki, cat is like tied up. But why doesn't she have a mask on? I ask this question about a lot of people these days. And this is where it gets confusing for me too, because they take her back and forth so many times that it has to be that kind of reason. When they're in the big turnstile here, Mm -hmm. inverted satyr pushes her out of the room with a mask on and then takes it off her. So I don't have an answer for you. Sater tries to kill Kat in this car crash by just keeping her in the car tied up and the car is just zooming away and she's in there. But then she does this absolutely crazy maneuver because she is so tall <laughs> where she is in the back seat. I'm just trying to describe this in a way that makes sense. She uses her heel to unlock the front door from the back seat diagonally and then the protagonist is able to save her but this moment is just it's crazy i'm like you know it's wild great let elizabeth debicki be tall did you see the article hunter harris wrote i did her performance in the scene really it's so (laughs) So funny so funny so then after he tries to save her then the protagonist is captured and taken back to this warehouse slash giant turnstile so they're taken into the turnstiles where cat is tied up in the other room long story short she is reverse shot with an inverted bullet and this is also where we learn about the temporal pincer movement where half of satyr's team is going forward and half is going backward through time so that they can just gain more information about what's happening Sater learns that the protagonist lied about where that piece of the algorithm was. And then Sater is going to reverse and go back through the scene to find out and grab it. This scene, I think, is very challenging because in addition to having these kind of two sides to the room of the turnstile, you can see through the glass... One is blue, one is red. The blue and Mm -hmm. red are really important to keep track of. The dialogue is, some of it's in reverse. A lot of it is not audible. Then we see Aaron Taylor Johnson come in, who I didn't know was in this movie at all. I didn't know that, but the first time I saw this movie, I didn't know he was in this scene yet. I didn't know he was in it until the very end. Mm. So the second time through, I was like, oh, okay. Because then he's introduced as posterity. He leads this group of troops and they're posterity soldiers who are from the future. And they Mm -hmm. work for Tenet. 
this is remember when I said earlier the protagonist just like sometimes he does stupid things. Right. He's introduced to this inversion and mm-hmm. that he can't come in contact with his other self. And so the woman hands him a suit and he says, No, I'm going. And he doesn't listen to her. And part of really where this goes wrong for him is that Seder recognizes him in the car. So he knows that there's a second version of him because then he's fully able to take back the missing piece. And then he tries to kill him. But instead with reverse entropy, he gets hypothermia. And then he wakes up in this bin where they're being inverted, shipped back. Back to the Oslo Freeport. Because in Oslo, they can use the same turnstile that they know of. And they have to get themselves going forward. So, okay. Then Rob Pattinson explains more about this future generation inverting everything to attack or wage war on the present and he describes this grandfather paradox which is basically if you went back in time and you killed your grandfather would you then cease to exist and then not be able to kill him in the first place then we go back to oslo you can probably guess what's about to happen right so they end up in oslo and they have to go back into the freeport so This is when we fully realized that the protagonist was fighting himself, inverted, trying to get back to the turnstile. And what was interesting here is that I read that while he was fighting himself, the inverted version of himself was trying to unload the gun Mm -hmm. so that he wouldn't kill him back in the present. That doesn't make sense. but No, yeah. Like he he wanted him to have an unloaded gun, which is kind of cool. To protect himself, yeah. I didn't realize that at all the first time that I watched it. And then we learn here that Neil saw the protagonist because he took his helmet off and we knew that that was who that was. They exit... Happy ending, the end. <laughs> Not one bit. <laughs> so we think <laughs> he catches up with Priya again. Again. So a scientist in the future, think Oppenheimer. She creates this algorithm that allows things to be inverted, which could trigger the end of the world because it would obliterate the past to create a better future. But again, grandfather paradox. And the scientist, she felt so guilty that she actually died by suicide because of it. But before that, she decided that she was going to hide bits of the algorithm in different places back in time in highly radioactive sites. It turns out that Seder, of course, has put together this algorithm and has plans of how he wants to and when he wants to set it off. Then, so we go to Kat and she reveals that Seder is dying He has pancreatic cancer, which I think we can assume, too, is, like, in part due to being around all this radioactive material. But does this, like, add anything to the story that Seder was dying? I don't know if it's trying to humanize him. He's been a clear villain, a clear antagonist the entire story. So for me, it didn't didn't really work on me. Then we find out the fact that his fitness tracker is connected to this algorithm. So I think the fact that he's dying and he still wants to end his own life to be able to decide when life is going to end for everyone else, that makes him an even worse villain in my book. Mm -hmm. So this takes us back now to... We're kind of at the the end. battle. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. We're here. It's interesting to see the scenes play out because there are like three huge scenes and they happen a lot quicker 
on rewatch than maybe they feel like they did the Mm -hmm. first time. The final scene on the soundtrack is called Posterity, and it's a 12-minute long song. And the fact that their watches are timed to 10 minutes shows that it pretty much happens in real time. Yeah. Which is crazy. I like that. But I like that a lot. Mm -hmm. Because one of my biggest pet peeves, especially I feel like I see it in a lot of crime TV or thrillers where they're trying to defuse a bomb and you have two minutes left on the bomb and you have 30 minutes left of the show. Now we're introduced that that this is going to be a temporal pincer movement. We have to figure out the day where Sater kills himself in the future. And... Kat shares that it would be, you know, the happiest that he's been. And that would have been their trip to Vietnam where he went away. So Neil mysteriously knows the date that this is on the 14th. We'll get to what posterity is doing. But at that same time, Kat from the future goes back to that moment to try to stop Sater from killing himself. And she's eventually going to kill Sater after they get the algorithm and stop it from going off the guy from yesterday who helped us with the plane is back and he's kind of waiting on the boat like waiting for the signal to give to her of when she can finally kill him the fact that the movie's name is yesterday and you just said he came back from yesterday has like made this infinitely more confusing right when i said that i was like oh no (laughs) that definitely makes everything harder and so also Sater doesn't know that this isn't the same cat. And she has to put her acting face on to convince Mm -hmm. him that she just came back because she wanted to make up for what for that fight that just happened. Because a huge thing of like that we haven't really talked about oddly, but about cat is that she is completely motivated by her son. She wants to be with her son, Max and Sater is keeping her away from him. So she was on this day, like off on this boat with him. And she tells Sater that he just went off with the nanny and she's back. So she can't kill him until yesterday man gets the (laughs) signal and gives her the signal from the battle that is happening to make sure that the bomb has to have gone off before he can give the signal. I think that an important thing here, too, is, like, this battle, I really, just the way it was filmed, was very chaotic. I didn't have a lot of idea what was going on, but I don't think it's entirely that important. I think it's mostly important to focus in on what's happening with our main characters here. Okay, so now for this final battle scene, we're in Stalks 12. Posterity is leading this mission to defuse the bomb, but we're trying to keep the algorithm from being blown up and causing the end of the world. The protagonist is on the red team, and he's going through time normally. And then Neil is inverted. He's on the blue team, and he's going backwards. That's pretty much all we know. So we know that the blue team is starting at the end once the bomb has gone off, and they're going backwards, and then the red team is going forwards. Kind of like the scene earlier in Talon where the red and the blue rooms each kind of characterized those two people. Exactly. And even though Neil is on the blue team, he kind of goes rogue and inverts and comes back to normal. I don't even know how we're talking about that, but (laughs) multiple times. Neil notices that they activate this tripwire, which ends up closing the tunnel. And then they notice that there's this gate that's blocking them from getting the algorithm. And there's also one of the guys who we've seen throughout the movie who's always with Sater and this guy on the blue team 
who is dead. And that's when then Seder calls the protagonist and tells him about how he's going to kill himself, activate the end of the world. He also says that it's for climate change. I don't remember the exact wording, but that's essentially like it's to protect the future from the past. Right. And that's the future is apocalyptic. Earth is unlivable, kind of like Interstellar Part (laughs) 2. And I mean, in that, I think is where this the code for Tenet comes from. We live in a twilight world, no friends at dusk, because like the atmosphere is shit. And mm-hmm. It's just an interesting thing where you're like, oh, okay. Yeah, more exposition <laughs> in the finale. It's like, here's some more information. So then, okay, we're back at Styles 12, and all of a sudden, this guy who we thought was dead like comes to life. And let it be known, we see the red string on his backpack. Mm-hmm. Again. Yep. And he takes the bullet and opens the gate. Cat never receives a signal from our yesterday friend on the boat, aka Himesh Patel, but she kills Seder anyway, which is a great moment. She reveals that it's the future self, like her future self, by like lifting up her shirt with the scar. And she's done all this like prep before he gets there. She like squirts sunscreen all over the deck i love love that that. (laughs) and she like unhooks this thing on the boat so she can just push him right off and then him falling off the side of the boat the music goes silent i'm not sure the bullet hole is really believable in his like Mm -hmm. chest i'm assuming that was to like keep his bodily systems alive Mm -hmm. long enough Mm -hmm. that it wouldn't go off for another moment or so but she pushes him through this little hole and you just hear him smack on the railing before he hits the water and it is gruesome. There's just this big thud <laughs> like as he hits the yeah. boat before he goes into the water. I want to know what that sound effect was I made know. of. <laughs> Simultaneously, Neil gets them out of the tunnel with the algorithm. So then they meet up with the algorithm. They're going to split it into thirds and bury it places so that same situation we had before kind of but then neil gives his portion to the protagonist this is when he reveals that they've actually known each other for years and that the protagonist in the future was actually the one who recruited neil to tenant he quotes casablanca in reverse kind of when he says i believe this is the end of a beautiful friendship and then neil reveals that it's a temporal pincer for the protagonist and they just you know talk about their friendship like briefly all these little like platitudes you know christopher nolan writing (laughs) But then as Neil turns, we see the little red string on his bag. So we know then that Neil was the one who took the bullet so that they could get the algorithm. Who saved him in the beginning. And the one who saved him at the beginning at the opera house. And the protagonist goes, wait. And he's about to tell him, but just kind of like how Neil earlier in the film didn't reveal things to him because Mm -hmm. it would have changed the timeline. He doesn't tell him. And that's like... Mm -hmm. That was more heartbreaking to me than like the cat satyr storyline. I agree because while I think that these characters needed more development and they were a little flat, their relationship was so much more 
compelling to me. I think, and then you see, of course, Neil go back into the turnstile. And that, I think after a few times is when it clicks that he's going back into the turnstile to save him. And that's just like, ugh. What a sweet moment. So that version of Neil is now dead in the bunker, right? Yes. We also have Opera Neil because that's the same day. Right. It's a lot. There are a lot of Neils. Lots of Rob Pattinson's out there. Which we're not done with. We are not done with at all. Earlier in the film, the protagonist had given Kat a phone saying, call this when you ever need me. She says, you won't be receiving my call. But then she's walking to get her son Max at school one day, sees this really nice car, and has a gut feeling that something bad is going to happen. So she calls the phone. The protagonist receives the call. And in the car was actually Priya going to shoot her to close up all the loose ends. And then the protagonist shows up, shoots the driver, and he says, I told you I am the protagonist. And then she, I think she knows it's coming because she moves the rear view mirror Mm -hmm. and she knows... He's going to shoot her. And then Kat is safe. Max is safe. We have a voiceover at the very end, which is the last line of the movie, which is, it's the bomb that didn't go off. The danger no one knew was real. That's the bomb with the real power to change the world. And it's a voiceover from Neil as we see Kat and Max as the final shot. Which leads us to believe, at least that I thought. Me too. And I was hoping they were going to go here, but... They didn't, and maybe they're just saving it, but I really think everything is tied up if Max is Neil. 100%. As I've rewatched, it's become clearer and clearer that this is the case. What pieces of evidence are your favorite besides the voiceover at the end from Neil, who isn't even in the scene as Robert Pattinson? I just think it ties everything up so much tighter Mm -hmm. and makes the story so much more complete if max aka neil is the one we're saving because in the future he's the one that like pretty much develops tenet in which they're able to go back and save him and it's like this very cyclical thing which nolan really loves Mm -hmm. going back for a second i think after the battle sequence when they all split up i think that neil goes back to kiev because then he gets on the plane and then maybe inverts back to Kiev to the very beginning Mm. to the opera. Okay. His timeline is the hardest to follow. Do you have any other moments or keys that led you to this? Oh, yeah. I have quite a few just random ones. One, he is British, just like his mom, just like Kat. But he reveals in the car that he can speak Estonian and reverse Estonian. And we know that Seder is Estonian. Those two pieces, I think, Mm -hmm. combined, right? Like, he is a product of both of his parents. Also, so Nolan has said in interviews that Neil might not even be his real name. And if you spell out Maximilian and then flip it, the last four letters are Neil. Oh, my gosh. Which is crazy. (laughs) There are so many things. Like, how much detail and care he puts into taking care of Kat after she's shot. He's not overly warm, but he he could have hired someone to do that or had someone right like on their team ready to go, but he personally takes care of her in a way that wouldn't reveal to the protagonist that he was her son. The other thing is that he knows the date of the Vietnam trip very readily, and I think if your parent dies, you remember that date. I mean, other things too, like he has a master's in physics and probably took an interest in it in, from youth, and I will say also the other things that I have about this theory are coming in a bit with my bigger theory. <laughs> but then why does 
the protagonists care more about inverting Kat to save her than Neil does. And going back to Oslo. I think that he has to be really careful about changing the way that things are. And I think we have to assume he kind of knows how things are going to go. There is a version of the story where instead of the protagonist, and maybe this version works better, where instead of the protagonist caring so much about this woman he just met, it is this Neil character caring more about Kat because she's his mom. There are also just like filmmaking things that Nolan does that I noticed. There were a couple of times when... Cat would talk about Max, it would just cut to Neil. It would be pretty okay. subtle, but there would be like little <laughs> things where that would happen. Or there's a scene near the end, and I don't remember the exact line, but Sater talks about bringing a son into a world that he knew was going to end, and it cuts directly to Neil in the battle. Hmm. I like that. Yeah. So I think when. I'll have to go yeah, back. Yeah. If you rewatch it and you like look for it with that in mind, as it's Neil's story, not the protagonist's story, it's so interesting because you do start to pick up on little things in addition to just being the colors of the teams and the colors of the different sides of the turnstile. Kat has two suits that she wears. At the beginning, when she meets the protagonist, she's wearing blue. And then when she's in the car, she's wearing red. The protagonist wears more reds. Neil is almost exclusively in blue-gray in that color palette. John David Washington just looks so sharp Yeah, throughout the whole He looks really good. His clothes fit him really well. The beard is so neatly trimmed. He has these like suits buttoned up all the way. And our pad is just slightly disheveled the whole time. But he's he's put together he's so too. hot he in is. this movie. Nolan has expressed for years that he's wanted to make a Bond movie. So I think this is kind of his. This is it. Yeah. Did you see a possibility where you could envision either John David Washington or Rob Pattinson as Bond? I mean, I think they both could. John David is definitely more calculated, but our Pat is like very action forward. I kind of hope he doesn't direct an actual Bond film. He can't do this to Bond. He is just so unique, and I like that this is kind of as close as we'll get, hopefully, Mm -hmm. because he can play with everything all at once, too. I will say that Kenneth Branagh goes full Bond villain. We have not talked about the accent. He's great. I mean, to to know that he's been directing these Agatha Christie remakes, Mm -hmm. but is fully a stage actor, like he just has so much range. Mm -hmm. I have another theory to reveal. Are you familiar with something called the Seder Square? No. Prepare for your mind to be blown. (laughs) Everyone listening at home, unless you're like medieval historians or you know, know your Latin, sit down, get ready. So the Seder Square is this magical square. It's made up of five words and they read the same way backwards and forwards, horizontally, vertically, and it's used for protection. It's kind of like this protective sigil. The words are in Latin and we can trace it to first century Pompeii. That's important. So remember Pompeii. The words are Seder, Arepo, Tenet, Opera, and Rotas. So, if we remember, Seder is our villain. Arepo is the person who gave Kat the fake. Tenet, of mm-hmm. course, the organization and the title of the film. Opera is where the Kiev attack happened. 
and Rotas is the Oslo security company. This square is really cool. It's a giant palindrome, and Mm -hmm. it's been used by people in different cultures, different religions for centuries. And if Neil is Max, where did Kat want to take Max so badly? To Pompeii. So did he go to Pompeii and find the Seder Square? And even if you don't like the movie, the fact that he did this is just really, really neat, I think. He, like, arranged a story around these five words. That's insane. And then the Christian tradition, if you, like, change the letters around, it spells out Pater Noster, our father, with the Alpha and Omega, like, beginning and end. So, our father, and he says, I'm a god, so he's the father of Neil, a.k.a. Max. Oh, my God. Wow. He better approve this theory or just say that everyone is correct because... (laughs) Oh, it honestly makes the movie so much better. Doesn't it? Knowing that. I have to tell everybody <laughs> that didn't like this movie, like, oh, did you believe this and this? And they'll be like, no. Oh, just said, look well, at the Seder Square. <laughs> That's amazing. I'm so perplexed. <laughs> I'm trying to read up on it right now. But it's just one of those things where it's like, Nolan, like, this is really cool, but what? no one knows what this is. <laughs> and no one, unless you're some, like, a classics scholar, why did they make a point that they were going to Pompeii? Other than the fact that this the oldest version of the Seder Square was found in Pompeii. It says that the square has reportedly been used in folk magic for various purposes, including against fatigue when traveling, which is the inversion. Including putting out fires, like when they reverse in time and he gets hypothermia mm-hmm. and it reverses. Oh the spell is to extinguish fire without water. Not well. <laughs> I wonder if it shows up anywhere, like hidden in the background I, at some point. I can't think about that, but... There's got to be some more imagery. We'll have to wait. We will. Till the next viewing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that is Tenet. I'm sure. I kind of want to watch it again now, which is <laughs> so too. crazy. So in terms of Oscar potential, this was on your list, right? For the draft. Yeah, I had Christopher Nolan and then Bennett had... Tenet as a film. I don't think it's going to happen. Definitely not for a director. Even for Garanson? I think that that's the best case. I think that is the most likely choice if it does get nominated for anything. I mean, I think we're going to have the same problem here as with Dark Knight Rises where I think the sound is going to be torn apart and especially in a year where we now have combined sound category. Mm -hmm. There's Probably no way it can be one of the five. I think visual effects is a possibility. I could see the inversion scenes and those action sequences working Mm -hmm. in that category. But it also... In terms of the number of CG scenes, there were like maybe 130, which I think is super, super low compared to like Avatar or CGI films. I guess I just don't know what we're going to have come out though, because those big films are usually going to be the ones and I have Dune on my list for the draft and I think that that's definitely more likely there. It could be a dark horse for cinematography. Again, probably not likely. But Nolan just hasn't fared well at the Oscars, period. I know. We can kind of transition and talk about box office and how that's been going. I know after this weekend has hit $250 million worldwide, which is great. Definitely not pre-pandemic numbers. The tough part is the domestic box office. So $30 million domestically in two weeks. Two weekends where it was, and this is according to CNN, about $9.5 million and 
6.7 million at the box office. I mean, the absence of the LA and New York markets there is mm. huge. It's not exactly looking good for other movies that are hoping to open. If you wanted your movie, and not that it wasn't appreciated, but if you want people to like really marvel in it, you really just have to delay mm-hmm. it until things are normal, yeah. which could be a year, two years, who knows. So I'm curious to like why he really wanted to push each delay, you know, each two week delay that happened. It's not worth it. It's been so hard not to be able to talk to a lot of people about Tenet. And that's, I think, part of what I miss most about movie going is that post theater experience where you talk to your friends and the random person that's sitting next to you about how they felt about whatever you just saw, especially in the case of a Nolan movie. I guess the one good thing to come out of all of this confusion even with the movie's release is that there really isn't like you mentioned before much to spoil in a way there's no like this happens and like the Mm -hmm. movie is spoiled which is great so hopefully you know once people do see it they can enjoy it for what it is if you haven't seen Tenet yet and you just listen to this anyway thank you (laughs) go see it in a very safe way that you can the drive-in experience is an experience. It's still worth it to do mm-hmm. it that way. You do miss a few things, but it's something we'll look back on, hopefully, in 40 years and say, oh, yeah, remember when we saw that movie <laughs> in that car? <laughs> Where no one could turn off their lights. And On our next episode, we will be celebrating the 30th anniversary of one of the greatest movies of all time. We'll just say it. Martin Scorsese's Goodfellas. Which was released on September 19th, 1990, 30 years, only a few days ago. Stay safe, everybody. Wear your masks. We'll see you next time. Yeah, stay safe. Wear your masks.